This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, blog, portfolio, and even an online store with the Squarespace Commerce feature. For a free trial and 10% off your first purchase on new accounts, go to squarespace.com and use offer code TREK7. And also by TrekFan. TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club, it's a challenge. You will explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles, complete real-life mission objectives, and win great prizes. To face your first challenge and find out more, head on over to trekfan.org. You're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Literary Treks, our dedicated Star Trek books and comics podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me this week, as he always does, although this week it looks like he's been up to no good, it's my co-host, Matthew Rushing. Now, Matthew, am I right in understanding that you've just arrived back from some bro fighting at the 602? You know, I have. Uh, there's probably a stake on my eye, so if I sound a little muffled, uh, you know why. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, Captain Archer and I had a disagreement uh, about uh, Porthos, who kept rubbing up against my leg and getting my uniform all furry. <laughs> so, yeah, it turned into a bro fight, and... Goodness. Oh man. I'm I'm tired, Chris. That that archer, he packs a wallop. He does. But I'm assuming you won because when you came on screen you were you were sipping some Johnny Walker blue label out of your six oh two club shot glass right there. Yes, yes. Uh poor Archer. Uh with no match for my massive skills uh in bro fighting. <laughs> and uh you know I've been well, practicing. I mean, so I need well, well you've you know you got that training from Jeffrey Combs. You've got that Andorian touch. No human can can stand up Which to that. is great because you know Jeffrey Combs can train every human being on the planet at the same time because he is everywhere. <laughs> he really is <laughs> Well, that leads us to our first news story here. I have to ask you, do you think that he is going to be in Kirsten Byer's new Voyager book, Protectors? You never know. I mean, any alien they could meet in the Delta Quadrant could be played by Jeffrey Combs. In fact, she could just write the description as, he looks vaguely Jeffrey Combs-ish. <laughs> that should be a thing. You should just describe people. Yeah, I, I'm excited as about being Jeffrey that, Combs-ish. Yeah. yeah, that's really so good. So this one is called Protectors, um, and so I'm not sure exactly what that's going to entail, but it does sound like they're going to be leading off her last book a little bit. And uh, also, it's expected in late January 2014, so... It looks to be the first book on the schedule, which I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm really excited because if next year isn't all TOS heavy at the beginning of the year, I'm going to be the most excited reviewer ever. 
<laughs> right. Yeah, Shar and I were just talking about that on the Ready Room this week about how stacked. Oh, the I heard has you and Shar talking books. on the Ready Room about me. <laughs> I told her. <laughs> cool it with the Matthew stuff. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah. Well, it's all in good fun. So. It is, but but yeah, so we're going to be getting Voyager to kick off 2014, and, and I'm glad that they're going to be returning to a mix. You know, we've we've got the Enterprise book coming up, we've got The Fall, now we've got Protectors by Kirsten coming up, and and I think that's great because, you know, the Star Trek universe is huge, and, and, and I want to sample all corners of the Star Trek universe. Well, and honestly, uh, under Kirsten's, you know, deft hands. It's been one of the better series. Uh, I've just really enjoyed the Voyager series. Every one of the books I thought has been stellar. There hasn't been a stinker since she's been doing it. And so I'm very excited to see what happens next, especially after the Eternal Tide, which was such a landmark book now for the Voyager series. So I'm very, very excited that uh, Pocket Books has decided the way to go is to have Voyager start off the year in you, if anybody who knows me, for me to be really excited about something Voyager, that's saying something. <laughs> that's true. So we'll have to wait to get a bit more information on this, and hopefully we'll get cover art in the coming months. I'd love to see what they're going to do here. So um, we're waiting for that. But something that we will get our hands on much sooner than that, in fact, you can get your hands on it right now if you like, because it came out last Tuesday, is Christopher L. Bennett's Enterprise book, Rise of the Federation, A Choice of Futures. And Matthew, you found this really cool bit of artwork over on the Trek Collective where Bennett put together his uniform design of what the transitional uniforms moving from Enterprise into the TOS era would look like. And this is a really cool concept. Yeah, Bennett does uh, some really good work here. He really goes into explaining why, you know, you have the different service patches for uh, the different ships uh, that we see in TOS, um, giving uh, some of the different colors um, that you would see so that uh, you would get uh, security would actually be in gray, reflecting the Mako origins. You'd get engineering in red. Um, You'd have science in blue because of the Vulcans, and then you'd have an avocado color from the Andorians. Yeah, I love the color scheme that he's come up with here. I personally really love the fact that security is in gray to reflect the Makos, because one thing that I haven't liked about Star Trek, which of course started in the original series and it's been carried all the way through, is the fact that engineering and security both wear red. You know, I I would like them to have their own separate division colors and gray makes a lot of sense for security especially since i mean do you put your security people in the loudest color possible i mean (laughs) you're going to beam down a planet that might be dangerous it might not (laughs) but let's make sure these guys stand out (laughs) exactly I i know so this is really cool i like this and i like the avocado for command which helps to show why Kirk in TOS hangs on to the avocado green tunic for special, you know, he's the only one who has it, whereas other people on command track have the gold. Well, Chris, I don't know why you wouldn't have that nice green wraparound. I mean, it, it, if you're, if you're, you know, really manly, it shows off just enough chest hair and 
Uh, it just really <laughs> frames, you know, the Shatner body really well. And so, come on, I got to give it to the green wraparound. It's Shatnercado. That's what there it's called in the Crayola box. <laughs> if you get the full, like, 512 color Crayola box. That's right. It's in there. Star Trek edition, of course. Um, another thing he has on here is the Telar Space Administration Operational Support and Supply uh, insignia, which was also the Antares insignia. And is it just me, Matthew, or does this thing look kind of like the footprint of a pig? Oh, it does very much. In fact, I'm pretty sure that that's exactly why uh, Bennett has uh, chosen this one to be representation of, you know, Teller, uh, the pig people. Um, it's not racist. <laughs> uh, it's just a fact. That's what they are. It is, yeah. But I love these uniform designs in the way that they've combined the color scheme of TOS, but they have the zippers from the Enterprise uniforms. So it really is a transitional design. You've got the mission patches on the side of the sleeves, yet you've got the TOS era rank insignia on the cuffs. It's a, it's a great little merging of the two. Very nice work. Yeah, these look like actually some really functional uniforms as well, which, you know, TOS uniforms were, I would not say functional, uh, unless, you know, you just spent all day in pajamas. Well, some people do, you know. I mean, really, if you could work from home and there was not going to be anyone else around, wouldn't you like to just work in your pajamas all day? They just carried that forward and just That's made true. it like a shipwide policy. That's very policy. true, except, you know, one thing there is that they cut the pajamas off there like mid-calf and then gave you those really nice high-heeled boots. And so, yeah, I don't really do that if I'm working from home. Right, you've got your pajamas on, but you've got big leather boots on all day long. But that is, doesn't everyone in Texas just wear big leather boots all the time? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, there's never a time that a Texan is not wearing boots. No, Chris, I just wear flip-flops in the summer. <laughs> <laughs> oh come on! I, I've seen those. I've seen those uh, videos um, on PBS of preschools in Texas where the kids are running around with big boots on. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness! You know um, we do love our boots here in Texas. They are great. Um, but you know there are lots of other states that have boots too, like Alabama and Mississippi, and Georgia, and Kentucky, and I mean, I could keep going, you know, the entire I South. I see a theme here. I noticed you didn't include California, North Dakota, or Maine. Well, I mean, I don't really know North Dakota is famous for their boots. I mean, but maybe Char <laughs> has a very nice pair. That's right. <laughs> I was just giving you a chance to pick on Char there, Matthew. <laughs> Oh, goodness. Well, this was a great find. I, I really love this. And so I'm looking forward to the book. Uh, now that it's out, I'm going to have to pick that up as soon as I finish reading the novelization of Into Darkness now. So um, looking forward to that. But let's move on to the next title, Matthew. This is a new book coming out for all of you who want to know your way around the galaxy in the 23rd century, 24th century. It's the first update to Star Charts since 2002. This is the Star Trek Stellar Cartography book written by friend of the network, Larry Nemechek. Yeah, it's it's pretty exciting that um, 
we were going to get another book like this. I mean, we got Federation first 150 years, and they've decided that that obviously did well enough to be able to do this. And I'm so excited to see this. Um, you know, what's really frustrating, I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm riding around in my runabout, and uh, I can't find my maps. Um, and now, Larry Nemechek has helped me out. I'm going to be able to find my way to that Sonic that's on Beta Antares 3 that I keep missing, and now I'll know exactly where it is. Because these are all just maps of where Sonics are in space, aren't they? (laughs) That's right, yes. (laughs) Except instead of roller skates, they come out with little jet boots on like Spock had in Star Trek V. Oh, see, this is why I keep trying to make it to Beta Antares 3, and they're Sonic, because I, I hear they have the best tots. <laughs> do Sonics, do, do the girls still come out on roller skates like they did back when I was growing they, up? They do. Uh, they, oh, yeah. you know, sometimes they come out in rollerblades, but, you know, they're still on skates. Yeah, it'd be rollerblades these days, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. you know, but every once in a while you get a throwback girl and she's got the real skates on and it's pretty cool. Um, so... Yeah, this is going to be a, a fantastic uh, book. It, it's going to be uh, never-before-seen large-format maps that actually are able to come out of the book, which is yeah. really, I think, the best part. You know, you, you get those fold-out maps or something like that in a book, and, and it's really frustrating. So to be able to t- actually take the maps out of the book, fold them out, look at them, it, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah, and when you say large, you're serious. These are 36 by 24 inches. So they're really large maps, and there are going to be 10 of them in the book. Which, you know, if you wanted to, you could actually frame some of these maps. You know, have them in your wall, yeah. and it'd probably be uh, fantastic artwork. So I'm really excited. I even like uh, the covers beautiful for the book as well um, here, and we'll have that in the podcast for you to be able to see. So this is a really great book. I'm very excited that, um, you know, Amazon is taking this on with 47 North to, to put out these really high quality Star Trek nonfiction books. It's kind of strange that nonfiction is back. It is. And and I think that's a sign of the resurgence of the franchise in general, because it was during the heyday of Star Trek in the 90s when we were getting so many of those nonfiction reference books. And then they started tapering out, you know, the, the Voyager companion is really nothing more than episode summaries that you can find anywhere. And I don't even have my Voyager Enterprise. companion anymore. <laughs> I have it, but... It's it pales in comparison to the DS9 or the TNG companions. And then Enterprise, we didn't get anything. So now we're starting to get a lot of these nonfiction reference books again. And I think it shows that Star Trek is becoming a much healthier franchise from a marketing standpoint Although than did it you, used to be. And that's wonderful. Did you know, though, Chris, that today, actually, Man of Steel passed... Star Trek Into Darkness in the States is a higher grossing film. So I'm hoping, though, that um, they do not wait a really long time for this next Star Trek film. Uh, I think they definitely need to have that come out in 2015. Um, you, you, you can't keep waiting. Well, it has to come out in 2015 or it's going to be a complete fail. Because if you can't put a Star Trek movie out in the 50th anniversary year of the franchise, then... 
you're you're doing something wrong. So yes. I'm sure that they're going to have it out. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, I I don't think JJ will be directing this time though. Just you know, probably not. He's going to be I, deep into the Star Wars stuff. Yeah, so. I think there's another Star franchise that he may be involved in. Uh, so that's exciting though. I no matter who yeah. they get to direct it, I know it's. It, I, from the direction I think they took in the last film, I think this one will be uh, just as good. So, Yeah. But before we get too deep into that stuff, uh, to wrap up the book here, uh, you talked about framing some of these maps. They will be wonderful if you want to play on your own conquest of the galaxy because some of the maps that you're going to get in here are an ancient map of Vulcan, a Klingon Empire map from the pre-Organian Peace Treaty era, which, of course, will be in the native Klingon, an official Romulan government map of the entire Romulan Empire, a native Cardassian Union map from the Bajor occupation, and you're going to, of course, get the Federation maps from the modern era. So you're going to be set, no matter which corner of the galaxy you want to conquer, uh, you know, plan your secret Section 31 activities, whatever you want to do. You can slap these up on the wall and and, and get some push pins or post-it notes, you know, if you don't want to damage your map, and you're going to be set. Well, Chris, uh, jumping into some comic news, uh, John Byrne is going to be doing a new Star Trek comic, but with a slightly different spin. What's he got in store for us, Chris? Now, this is really interesting, Matthew. This reminds me of something that my colleague Kelly and I would have done way back in the 90s when we worked in pre-press together at a magazine. What we had on our desk was the daily Star Trek calendar, which would have a scene from an episode. And we used to, every day, create caption bubbles and we would write our own dialogue for what was really happening in that scene. And that's pretty much what John Byrne is doing right here. He's taking screenshots from actual TOS episodes, creating a comic page with them, and writing new dialogue to create a new story. Well, and it's exciting because they're going to be going back to Delta Vega to find a long-lost crewmate. So, as Chekhov says here, why does that name sound familiar to me, Captain? <laughs> Which um, I don't know why Chekhov would know, since he was not a part of this mission. But you know, in the same token, Khan never forgets a face. So there's a lot going on in the Enterprise we did not know about in that first season. There really was. They had Chekhov stashed away somewhere on the ship. Waste extraction. <laughs> or maybe he was um he was always down in engineering as an understudy to Scotty, right? Or or maybe he was the TOS Argyle for a while, you know. Um Chekhov was making his vodka next to <laughs> right. the warp core and uh, you know, apparently, you know, Chekhov vodka is fantastic. Apparently it is. So I don't know, Matthew, what do you think about this idea of, of, so IDW and CBS, they have greenlit this project and it's going to be published coming sometime in 2014. It's it's a huge change from what we're accustomed to from John Byrne. What do you think about this? You know, Chris, the, when I first saw this, I kind of thought that this looks like something mad TV would do. 
Um, yeah. and, uh, so I'm not really sure what to make of it just yet. Um, it could be a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I, I, I tend to like comics because of their artwork and those kind of things. And so just mishmashing pictures and putting some thought bubbles over them, it, it loses something comic-y for me, I think. Um, and, uh, but you know, hey, John Byrne is great. So hopefully the storyline itself will be excellent. I think it will be. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see how it plays out. When I first looked at the image, I thought he's mocking up the page so that it could then be drawn. But apparently this is what it's going to be. So we'll see how it turns out. Well, as we're talking about comics, Matthew, for our feature today, now that I have actually seen Star Trek Into Darkness. Star Trek Into August! <laughs> which thankfully for me was not. It was only Star Trek Into June for me. But before we get into that subject, let's tell everyone a little bit about our sponsor for today's show, Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create a professional website, a blog, a portfolio, and with the new commerce feature that they added recently, you can even have an online store up and running in just a matter of minutes. And, you know, as a designer myself, what I love about Squarespace and the reason that I have been a Squarespace customer for the last five or six years is that they really care about design. Not only is it fast and easy to use and build a website with Squarespace, they have beautiful templates that are designed by professional designers that you can use as a starting point for your website or your blog and really make the site your own. And you do it all using a technology that they call Layout Engine. Matthew, can you tell us a little bit about what Layout Engine is? Sure can, Chris. It's really cool. Layout Engine uh, technology gives you the freedom to create a visually rich page that uh, configures the text, the images, the, the products, and, and you know those content blocks. You simply drag your content exactly where you want it, and then they'll automatically align them in a perfect grid. And if you're like me and you're not somebody who's really web savvy, this is perfect. Um, it, you know, like you said, the layouts are beautiful, and just being able to put things where I want them and kind of rearrange them by dragging and dropping is fantastic. It and is. then what's great about this, Chris, is it's got responsive design. Uh, Squarespace website has its own unique mobile design so that your site automatically scales. So if somebody's looking at it their iPhone, it's going to look one way. If it, you look at it on your iPad, it's going to look another. And if you look on the desktop, you're going to have that full site. But this way, people don't miss the content. It's created specifically for the device they're looking on, which is really important in today's mobile world. Another thing I wanted to mention this week, because we don't really talk about this feature very often, is the developer platform. Because you know, some of you may be listening and you may be thinking that, you know, this drag and drop, it's all great for the average person, but I'm a web developer and I like to have absolute 100% control. I like to write my code by hand. I like to write my own custom CSS. I want to be able to, you know, have FTP access where I can upload and, and download files back and forth uh, as I please uh, with a traditional, you know, file folder structure. Well, you can do that with Squarespace as well. In addition to the uh, drag-and-drop system that we talk about most of the time, Squarespace actually does have a developer's platform that gives you complete control over the display of your website, 
It gives you complete control over every line of HTML, CSS, and JavaScript. It has Git and SFTP, Secure FTP. It also has version control. That comes standard. It has developer tools like less preprocessing, JSON templating, you know, script comboing. It gives you retina-ready responsive image handling, which is really important these days as more and more displays become retina quality. And, uh, and a great thing about the Squarespace developer platform is that developer accounts are free. They never expire while in development. And you can take as much time as you want developing the website before you launch it. And you don't pay anything until you're ready to launch the website. And then once you're ready, the pricing starts at $16 per month when you go live. It's very, very affordable. It's a great way for you to take advantage of all the power of Squarespace that we normally talk about while you maintain complete control as the developer and you're not having to put out money during that development process either. So it's a fantastic option for you if you are a developer and and you think Squarespace sounds great but maybe you you are concerned that it might limit you. Trust me, Squarespace will not limit you. You can do absolutely Squarespace is that they take care of hosting, they take care of SEO, your search engine optimization, and they give you this incredible CMS in one package and they back it by what is, and I really mean this, the best 24 hour, seven day a week support that you'll find anywhere. Squarespace has always been incredibly responsive when I've needed their help with anything. They usually respond to me in two minutes or less. They have helped me with issues that really weren't even their concern, but they stick with me until I get it resolved. Uh, the, The nicest people, the best support that I've ever experienced with any company, maybe Apple would be the other company that I've had the same kind of experience with, wonderful experience. So Go try it. You can try it for free, 14 days. They don't ask you for a credit card. You just give them your name and an email address. They set up the trial site for you using that information. You have access to all the features of Squarespace for 14 days. And then after that, when you sign up as a Trek FM listener, you can save 10% on your lifetime purchase on all new accounts. And to do that, just go to squarespace.com. And when you sign up, use offer code TREK7 to save 10%. And you'll be supporting our sponsor and helping us bring this programming to you every week. Well, today, Chris, we're really excited because you've finally seen Star Trek Into Darkness. And now I did. Uh, we actually get to talk about uh, some of the things we saw in Countdown Into Darkness and how that kind of played in the film and, and also how they're playing into the After Darkness comics. And so we're ongoing After Darkness. It's, it's, it's going to be a lot of fun tonight. Um, and so first, you saw the film just real quickly. Give us a couple of thoughts just in general so people kind of know what you thought of the film. Okay, yeah, people have been asking me on Twitter a lot, what did you think about the movie? And I didn't want to say too much on Twitter because, first of all, I want to write a full review of of the movie. And um, I'm going to be reviewing it for a magazine here in Tokyo. That's why I went to the uh, screening, early screening at Paramount. And I'm going to write a longer review on my own blog with all my thoughts. And my thoughts are way too complex for Twitter. So I didn't want to really get into it there. Wait, Chris, um, you, you can't put all your thoughts into just 140 characters? Come on, where's your sense of adventure? Surprisingly, no. You know, I mean, 140 <laughs> characters are great for discussing 
politics or other very complex oh, issues. Oh, yeah, like but, general relativity, you know, or... Yeah, but for Star Trek, I think I need a little more space. So, But, you know, I, I have to tell you, I, I really loved the first half of the movie, and I wasn't so fond of the second half of the movie. And I will go into great detail about that as I write about it on my blog. But my overall impression of the movie is that... I liked the story a lot better than 2009. You know, it had a meteor story. It had a good start to finish. Uh, And the comics, which we're going to talk about today, I think did a really excellent job of leading us into that story. So for me personally, having read all of the ongoing comics, as well as Countdown to Darkness, leading right into it, when the movie began, I really felt like I was prepared for that story. And... I think that the comics really did enhance the movie experience for me. And I also just need to give kudos to JJ and everyone involved in the movie for concealing the storyline of the movie. Despite all the trailers that they released and all the teasers, which I thought was a little bit too much, in the end, they did a really good job of throwing you off track about what was going to happen in this movie. So... Um, I was impressed with that. I think you're right. Um, I enjoyed the fact that a lot of the issues we saw in uh, Countdown to Darkness kind of creep into the film. Um, You know, it sets up a lot of what you'll see uh, Prime Directive talk-wise, the frustration that Kirk kind of has with that in this film. Um, Definitely. I really enjoyed also the fact that they set up in... Uh, Countdown to Darkness, this kind of seedy underbelly of Starfleet, that there's some very underhanded, strange things going on. And the fact that somebody like uh, Admiral Marcus is involved with that, uh, that uh, somebody like Christopher Pike uh, at least seems to kind of know about it a little bit um, in that very last issue of uh, Countdown to Darkness, where he just tells Kirk, you're going to drop... April off and you're going to leave it at that. You don't need to know anything else. And so, uh, of course, unfortunately, spoilers, Christopher Pike is dead now. And so we'll never quite know exactly how might, how much he might have known. And so I, I just really, that's my question. Like, do you think he really knew what Marcus was up to? Or do you think he was just following orders from above that anyone outside of the ranks of admiral do not need to know what's going on here i think that pike was a character who didn't know that much either i get the feeling that there were a lot of things that he would have been surprised uh you know if he had stayed alive he would have been shocked i think by what marcus was up to with section 31 um i think so too so Um, and a great loss, honestly, uh, you know, I, I thought those scenes that he has with, um, Kirk are just hands down fantastic. Probably my favorite scenes in the film when they're talking in the bar, um, that, yeah. you know, they have a really good father son dynamic going on. And, um, that was a really important key for the film. And, and, um, but, uh, I also thought that it, again, you know, watching the movie, and if you've read the comics, you can pick up a, especially all the backstories that they were doing. I thought were really interesting, you know, 
And, uh, you know, we had the Uhura backstory where she's in the shuttle and this big accident happens and the same thing kind of happens to her and Sulu in this film, you know, and they haven't abandoned the shuttle. They're abandoning somebody else. She's abandoning somebody else she loves. So I thought that that was interesting mm-hmm. that, you know, the comic that we were not quite a fan of actually really paid off if you had read it because you could understand why she's really upset about leaving Spock. It's not just that he's Spock. It's this has happened to her before. Right. And going back to cases like the Galileo 7 comic where she's very annoyed with Spock for risking his life. You know, she at that point, she's already on him about how he's taking unnecessary risks. And that pays off in the film as well, where when they're going down to Kronos, of course, she and Spock are having the the whole big debate about she's really pissed at him because she feels he's taking unnecessary risks. Uh, Of course, by going into the volcano, it's like he's not thinking about her. He's not thinking about how his death would impact her. And all that was set up in the ongoing comics leading up to the film as well. And so... That made, I think, of course, we have to separate ourselves here from the average viewer who hasn't read the comics, which would be the majority of people watching this film have not read the comics. There are only a small percentage of us who read all the ongoing comics going in. But I think that that whole debate with Uhura and Spock in the shuttle makes more sense if you have followed the storyline from the end of the last movie through the comics into the movie into darkness and if you haven't i think that might come off a little bit like out of the blue yeah um their their fight does seem to come off like that a little bit in in the film itself um and and i guess i'm with you i had read the comics so I, i didn't feel like this is coming out of out of nowhere i had been seeing it for a long time and and it seemed even me if I have not read the comics I know enough about Star Trek to know that a human and a Vulcan trying to have a relationship are going to be having these problems he's emotionally unavailable what do you what do you expect Uhura um and so uh, that's that's something that you kind of expect to see as a dynamic play out um again you know there are a lot of people they've never really seen Star Trek before or and they definitely have never read the comics so this is is Something like, oh, okay, they just don't get along. So, um, But I, I think this speaks well to just how much I think that they've worked really hard to have the comics be very influenced by the film, but also carry forth a story in and of their own right, which is pretty awesome. Right, yeah, yeah. And, and as we're talking about other characters, of course, Carol Marcus being in the film, the comics did a good job of making it possible for her to end up on the ship without it feeling like they were just randomly grabbing a character from the original series films and throwing her into this movie just because, oh, maybe it would be cool to have Carol Marcus on there. Um, I think it's cool that Carol Marcus is there and that she remains on the ship at the end of Into Darkness, so that we can actually see that relationship between her and Kirk uh, develop. Because we know, now we don't know in this universe if they will get married and if David will be born, maybe they won't. Uh, But 
I, I, I like the fact that they're together here because that's kind of a backstory from the prime timeline that we don't know very much about. And, and it's nice. But if they had just thrown her in here, especially with it being the second film, and especially with the fact that they sadly chose to blatantly rip off The Wrath of Khan for the second half of the movie, if they had thrown her into this movie, pulling her out of The Wrath of Khan, it would have felt really cheap. But the comics do, by having her father be the rogue admiral here, it gives it some legitimacy, I think. Are you sure, though, that she won't end up with bones in his legendary hands? She could. Well, that's what I'm saying. We don't know what's going to happen in here. Yeah, I'm with you, Chris. I, I enjoyed the fact that they, they chose her father. They they planned that out in, in the comics. And then, of course, for to tie into the film, um, it, it does make it feel a lot more organic than just her being just kind of this random blonde that we wanted to have a hottie, you know, that Kurt could you know, look at or whatever. Um, I, I think it works a lot better than that. And uh, so they had definitely put some thought into that when they were writing the film and mm-hmm. uh, of course, tying in the comics. Yeah. Also on that point, what do you think about this? I don't like, and we've talked about this with John Tenuto. I don't like the fact that so far they are playing Kirk as the stereotypical Kirk ladies man where everyone thinks of Kirk as this guy who's just chasing women constantly and you know we've talked about Kirk really isn't like that even in the original series and definitely in the films he's not like that but that's sort of what people believe Kirk is like and in the Abrams verse they're really playing that up you know they have the whole thing with him in bed with two Vacations at the in the beginning of Into Darkness, but my question to you is: Do you think that by having Carol Marcus on the ship now, moving forward, that this is also going to help develop Kirk's character into a more mature character who is going to stop chasing every skirt on the ship and actually become a more maybe emotionally mature character, which of course will help him as a captain as well. Well, Chris, I really, I think that the 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 films have been portraying Kirk that way for a reason. Uh, they 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 wanted him to be somebody that we see grow from being that kind of rebel without a cause to being, mm-hmm. you know, a rebel with a cause. And um, you know, Kirk um, really grows up in this movie. Uh, and with the role reversal that you get at the end, Kirk being the one who has to sacrifice himself for the ship, you know, basically pull the Kobayashi Maru, which he never ever faces in in the uh, original series, you know, the Prime Universe. That that's never something Kirk really faces. Um, you know, he never has to face death himself until generations, and it doesn't really count, you know, because it's it's past the TOS era, you know, and this Kirk actually has to learn this lesson. And so uh, having Carol Marcus here gives them an opportunity, I think, to actually create a real relationship for Kirk that maybe in yeah. this universe he will have a family on his starship, which I think it would be a really cool dynamic to, to see uh, this Kirk go in a completely different direction than the one that we saw before. And you know, this universe uh, really is a very family oriented 
universe. I mean, they're they're really driving home that this Enterprise crew is is a family. I mean, the whole Inner Darkness movie is about that idea. What would you not do for your family, Kirk? So, um, <laughs> I I really see that could be something that be really awesome for them to finally explore i mean they they've done so much yeah. of this ahura uh, spock nonsense um but i'd really like to see them explore some other kinds of relationships uh and somebody say like kirk or bones or somebody like that you know so yeah the i i think the kirk carol marcus relationship has a lot of potential to be something that will be interesting something that we can relate to the spock ahura thing i you know, I I was never bothered by the fact that they paired up Spock and Uhura in the 2009 movie like a lot of fans were. I was fine with that. But what I'm seeing them do with it moving forward, I'm not really thrilled with it. it it's, it's becoming very cliche. It's very shallow. It's very cliche. It's very Uhura being incapable of understanding that Spock is alien and isn't going to think the same way she does about relationships and isn't going to be as emotionally available as a human would be. And it's still a lot of running around, checking on him and kissing him all the time. And I don't know, it's not, I don't see that relationship going anywhere, but I do see the Kirk and, and Carol Marcus one as potentially being a great storyline. So Chris, we have two new after darkness issues already that have come out. So uh, I thought it would be kind of fun just to kind of dive into those and 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 talk through some of the things they they did. And um, first thing, first issue that we get, first page, Chronos spelled with a Q. What the heck? I s- clearly saw that <laughs> on the film in the movie spelled with a K. What's going on? It is, and I think the explanation that you gave on a previous show that it's simply easier for the general movie-going audience to understand how to pronounce the name if they read it K-R-O-N-O-S on the screen is the reason that it's spelt that way in the movie. And comics are clearly only going to be consumed by real Star Trek fans, and we all know that it starts with a Q, and... They're doing it that way here for us because we would all be like, if it were a K in the comics, we'd all be screaming at IDW. Well, I thought it was interesting that this comic, it does start on Kronos, really giving you the idea that the actions that have happened in Into Darkness are having repercussions, that the ripple effects are being felt. Uh, what I didn't understand, did these Klingons not get the memo that... We've seen their faces now. You don't have to wear the damn helmets anymore. (laughs) I was thinking the same thing because, yeah, here they are in some kind of conference room. They're having their staff staff meeting. meeting. Klingon staff meeting right here. And they're all wearing helmets. And then later in this comic, or I think it's actually in 22, they're on the ship. And they're all wearing helmets on the ship as well. And I was thinking it must be really uncomfortable to just wear this big heavy helmet all day long. Maybe they're not made out of nice light carbon fiber. So, you know, uh, kind of like golf clubs. And so they're really durable, but they, they're not real Maybe. heavy. Um, but, you know, Klingons, I don't really think do that. Uh, everything they have is kind of heavy and clunky. So, yeah, I just thought it was Can funny. I- can I just ask you a question real quick? What do you think about the J.J. Abrams Klingons without the helmet on? 
you know, I didn't have a problem with it, um, mainly because uh, the other Klingons we saw, we all saw that they had hair because it's coming out the back of their their helmets. Uh, and so, you yeah. know, this this was, I think, just supposed to be the special badass Klingon, you know, that looked a little bit uh, reminiscent of Chang. Um, and, uh, you know, I didn't have a problem with the fact that, you know, why wouldn't they maybe decorate their, you know, ridges with jewelry? And, I mean, that seems like a very Klingon thing to do. Um, yeah. So it, it didn't bother me. It's their take. It, it reminded me a lot more of the TOS films, especially Star Trek VI. Um, the, yeah. the way that the head, it really does look like that that bone goes all the way back around back, uh, on the other right. side of their, you know, their head and down their, their neck. And so, well, uh, yeah, for me, okay, I have a couple takes on it. And I, I just wanted to talk about this topic because we were waiting so long to actually see the Klingons without their helmet on. Ah, I was kind of disappointed in it myself. But what I did see that they were trying to do was to take, to give them a more TOS television series feel, just in terms of how the face looked. And your point about the Klingons in the Undiscovered Country is a good one. Of course, that was largely done because, especially Christopher Plummer said, I'm not going to be in this movie and be in this extremely heavy Klingon makeup. And so they, they really scaled that down. And you can see where they're trying to bring the ridges in, work a little bit of the TNG era Klingons in. But I don't know. I just didn't feel like the makeup job was done very well. Um, decorating the ridges, I, I mean, I'm fine with that. It does seem like something Klingons might do, right? They're kind of, they're, they're warriors. And yeah, they're especially kind of badass and yeah. gypsy Klingons. I really see them yeah. doing that, you know. Yeah. Um, so th that worked fine for me, but overall, I don't know. And I think that, I think that Abrams verse is, they're making the aliens too similar. There's not much differentiation between Klingons and Romulans and humans. And they're using things like tattoos on the Romulans and forehead rings on the Klingons to differentiate. And it's especially noticeable outside of the movie. If you do something like playing Star Trek Rivals, where you really get to see the characters in really good headshots up close, you really see how it's kind of like, uh, it's almost like a Disney take on how you would differentiate aliens. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on it now that we've actually seen them without the helmets on. So anyway, let's jump back to the comic in Chamber Room where they are still wearing their helmets for some unknown reason. And th they pick up on Star Trek Four here. If you think about the opening scenes where the Klingon ambassador is showing, Behold! And they have Admiral James, James T. Kirk. Time. They're right here. Behold the face of that enemy. And they have Kirk up here on the screen. Yeah, and and really uh, playing on the fact that the Klingons do want a war, that this is something that's coming, and we've been knowing it's coming for a while, and just giving you that quick taste in the first two pages that um, yeah. the Klingons are just begging for an opportunity to go kick some Federation butt. So, Of course they are. They're Klingons, Matthew. Well, it's true. It's TOS Klingons. What I really liked is this next section about... Kirk visiting April 
and getting the backstory yeah. about how this connects and what April uh, was up to with Marcus. I, I think this was the part for me that when I first read this, I thought, okay, this is hands down just awesome uh, that they are connecting all of these things and it really makes sense. And the fact that, two, this comic series is not so much about building a movie it's about building the larger star trek world that they're creating right the movie fits right into the middle of the storyline very well and the video game fits into the middle of this as well so they they really are using the comics the video game the movie and then the comics again to tell one long story and you're just slotting in different pieces and the medium is different but it's one long story. And and that's something that we have not really seen Star Trek do in the past. To put this on the timeline, this meeting with April is taking place after the end of the action events of the movie and uh, the defeat of Harrison slash Khan. And that ceremony that we see that then takes us up into space with the beginning of the five-year mission, because later in the comics, we actually get the scene of the Enterprise with Chris Pine's dialogue of our five-year mission. So this is actually dropping us kind of within the movie in the final minutes of the movie. Well, and what's really cool, Chris, is, you know, we kind of complained in Countdown to Darkness, what the heck is going on with this Enterprise and the stupid code like, you have a different Enterprise, but this code right. is still there. They actually explain this in this. And so yes. the, the the idea, you know, in comics, there's always more questions. You know, they might answer something, but then there's always going to be more questions. And, and uh, you have to be patient when reading comics because they don't give you everything right away. And I really appreciated that they picked up something that we thought was kind of dumb. And they really explain it now. So you go back and you read that and you're like... There's so much more going on, you know, so mm -hmm. it's really cool. And even though in the movie, they didn't really explain that Marcus had used this code. And to be honest, I didn't even make the connection watching the movie. I didn't really think back to what April had done in the comic to take over the Enterprise. But now getting into After Darkness and this conversation we're talking about here, when he mentions it, then I look back at the movie and, okay so that's what happened and this still between april and marcus here a question for you matthew do you think that in the comic in countdown to darkness when april is reeling kirk in about the prime directive on fetus do you think he and marcus are working together to to try to soften Kirk up and, and somehow hopefully manipulate Kirk into doing their bidding in the movie, but it didn't work. You know, I, I think they are. And I think you can see that if um, Kirk hadn't gone through what he did, that he really would have um, been all game for what they were planning. I, I think he would have, uh, you know, launched those torpedoes and wouldn't cared at all. Um, but I think what happens there um, and his demotion and everything, you know, everybody has said, well, Kirk's only demoted for like five minutes in this film. But that demotion and, and the weight of that and realizing um, 
what's happened to him, I think, actually has a huge impact on that character. Oh, it does. And uh, it might happen quickly because it's a, you know, it's a two hour movie. You can you can't spend that much time. Um, but um, it, it, it really. Yeah, I, I think if if it hadn't gone like that on at the beginning of Into Darkness, um, if that whole thing had gone better, I think Kirk would have been much more game because I think he in the beginning of this film uh, for sure is is very kind of pissed off about the prime directive ideal uh, because of what happens with April. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that's true. I, I, I said a minute ago that it didn't work, but but in a way, maybe it did work because due to what happened in the Countdown to Darkness comics with April, at this point, at the start of Into Darkness, when they are on Nibiru, Kirk really doesn't care about the Prime Directive, right? He's like, so what if these aliens see the Enterprise coming up out of the ocean and big deal who cares and it isn't until pike slaps him down because he's even belligerent to pike right but then when he realizes that his ship's going to be taken away he's going to be demoted uh spock's going to be reassigned he realizes how much he has screwed everything up that kind of snaps him uh, to attention and so maybe maybe marcus and april were trying to set Kirk up to do their bidding. And Pike interrupted that. And Pike kind of brought him back to reality. Well, and I think what's really interesting here too is that uh, April and Marcus seem to be on one side of this where they can't see the the Federation and the Klingon Empire coexisting. Um, they're, they're, they're so prejudiced against the, the Klingons um, like Admiral Cartwright is in, in Star Trek VI there's no thought in their mind that this could be something that could could be you know do anything but war i mean that's that's the end that's all that's going to happen so all we have to do is win this war and and uh, i i think that that's a really interesting thing because then you see somebody like pike on the other side who is very much about the federation ideals of of life and exploration and finding a way that's not war um, and uh, it, it makes sense to me why there's a question of do, is is Harrison's attack part of Marcus's plan um, or not? And and that's for me in the film. I'm still wondering. I, I I think that's more a part of Marcus's plan than it is just John Harrison's. Right. That's a good question. And of course, you've seen the movie four times, five yes. times. Yes. Okay, and I've only seen it once, and I will not be able to see it again until <laughs> August. So, um, although I am reading the book now and listening to the audiobook because I love Alice Eve's voice, um, so I can fill in those blanks and I can like kind of get more into the story since I won't be able to just run back and see the movie a second time like you did. But that's a really good question, yeah. And I and I was thinking about that as the film went on. Is was that completely Harrison? being pissed off and and fighting back against Marcus or was even the bombing part of Marcus's plan. And I think part of the what made the film good for me was the fact that you can't you don't know because everybody's playing everybody and it's yeah. going to be really muddled on purpose. And so the whole idea of who can you trust, who can you believe, you know, all those things, family, all of this um, it was it was it was good, um, I thought, because too in the end, you know, Harrison is just kind of 
he's the ultimate chess player. He's playing everyone, and he just knows how to do it really well to get what he wants. Um, and that made him uber creepy for me um, because it showed that really cunning, smart side that somebody who's going to be a dictator like he was would need to be. You know, yeah. why would you want to throw this guy off your planet? Well, because he can outthink you so uh, in just about every way. And uh, so we want him off our planet. Just so, uh, yeah, this is good stuff. I, I think this was a great way to start this comic because it really connects us with what we've been reading before with the film and finding a way mm-hmm. to tie all those things together. But then after that, until later on down the road, just a few bits here and there where they're setting up future comics the story moves away from that very interesting intrigue and becomes a Spock story. Um, and they're not, it's not like the early ongoing where they were just taking original series episodes and redoing them with the new characters, but they are playing off of the storyline of Amok Time to further evolve this emotional Spock that we're getting in the Abrams verse. And I'm still not sure as much as I love them doing something new with the characters, I'm still not quite sure what I think about this Abrams verse Spock. Yeah. And part I'm, of it may be because of Quinto's portrayal of him. I, I I'm with you uh, for me, uh, the film um, Quinto's Spock is actually the, the character that I, um, resound with the least um i I just don't necessarily enjoy the way that he plays um him and uh it's i i you know i don't know it's not terrible it's it's just there's something to me that is missing from his spock um and i know he's different and everything i just don't love it still and uh but that's okay i you know i have plenty of other characters that i I really like but i just i think that in the writing that they're going to certain extremes with the emotion that he's experiencing from the destruction of Vulcan and the death of his mother that don't quite fit the character. Like you can explore how it's making Spock more emotional and how he may be embracing his human side more. And he's struggling to uh, contain those raw Vulcan emotions, but there's sort of like an, an uncontrolled anger about it that, doesn't quite fit the character for me. And in this comic, they're really taking that to an extreme. Yes, and they're definitely using that among time to, to be able to do that. I did want to point out real quick, Chris, because uh, we always enjoy this. Uh, on page 13, there's there's a really nice shot here um, of Carol Marcus. Um, and <laughs> yeah. as as we get on, on many uh, uh, occasions in the... Uh, ongoing comics it's it's a wonderful shot of Carol marcus and i'll just let the readers figure that out for themselves it is and as when i read this the first time as soon as i turned that page that's the very first thing i noticed on the page <laughs> and i thought of you so yeah it's 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 right there it's not my fault so um what i thought was interesting is that you know they're they're playing off this among time but to me you know, this is fine. I, I'm I'm kind of interested to see where they're going to go with this, you know, in the next uh, episode or issue. But I thought what was really interesting was the fact that 
we get this um, look at new Vulcan, which was great to see what that new planet looks like. In fact, there's water on this planet, I think, which is really interesting. Um, and, well, yeah, uh, the, the, the city seems to be built in the middle of, I don't, I don't know if it's an ocean, but the middle of a lake anyway. So that was really cool. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, and then, uh, honestly, the last part of this comic, I think, is just stellar. Uh, you get to Romulus, where you realize that um, they are also planning the demise of the Federation. And that there is a Section 31 agent in the Romulan Senate, which looks very much like the Romulan Senate from Nemesis. Uh, and they are willing to join with the Romulans to destroy the Federation, which very scary. Now, question, Chris, who is this Romulan agent who is obviously a woman? Who do you think this is? Well, um, you can't really tell from here. I would assume just based on the threads that they've planted, that it is mud. You know, I thought that, but um, it doesn't really fit with her character. So I actually it think doesn't. this is uh, McKenna, the the red uh, squad uh, person that Sulu runs ah, into. That's yes, that's that's great. And uh, I think the person right. who was supposed to be on the Enterprise but got sick, yeah. um, I think that's the reason they introduced yeah. her. And it would make yes. sense for her to be a part of Section 31. And yeah. I, I just think that would be a great tie-in because it leads back into all those other books and, and then, you know, makes a nice thread. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes great sense. I think you're right. Yeah. She's a very young operative, though, isn't she? Yeah. Um. You know, but... Uh, that's one of the things that we see in this, this, you know, uh, Abrams versus that everybody is very young, mostly, uh, you know, doing all the action. And so, cause you know, Chris, yeah. we need our, our heroes and, and our, and our villains to all be sexy. Uh, they, they can't, um, you know, be old or, or fat. And if they are, we kill them. Um, you know, Pike, he's getting old, kill him. Uh, you know, so, uh, Peter Weller, he's old, he's got to die can't live you know he's the bad guy too so um i i just thought when i read this the first time that is a great ending because it sets up that there is so much going on in this universe that uh, i'm really excited to find more about yeah yeah well this is great and this is what i like i'm not as interested about the crazy raged spot going through pond far at the middle and Uhura being upset about it or concerned or whatever. I'm very interested in this, the beginning of this comic and then here at the end with the political intrigue mm -hmm. of the Romulans, most definitely. Which was fantastic because on Wednesday, for us, we got the next issue dropped of uh, After Darkness and it starts right off with more political intrigue in Romulus. Yep. Yeah, it's very nice, you know, and we find out that they want to get rid of the Federation, but they also want to get rid of the Klingons, right? So they're actually willing to have the Federation help them get rid of the Klingons, and then they can turn on the Federation, which is exactly what you would expect from Romulans, because as we've talked about on the Ready Room many times, the um, 
The Romulans are a much more interesting race than the Klingons, really, because Romulans are very sly and scheming, and you don't really ever know where you stand with the Romulans. And that's why I wish that the Romulans had been a bigger part of Deep Space Nine as the war evolved. The Klingons, you pretty much know where you stand with Klingons, right? They don't like you. They might work together with you if it suits their needs, but you're still going to know that they would really like to get rid of you. You know, there's never going to be any illusion as to whether or not you're really friends with them. It's kind of like the U.S. and the Soviet Union during, say, World War II, where they were allied together because it was in their best interest. But no one ever really thought that these two superpowers were really friends or that they really wanted to not be rid of the other one. And that's how kind of, yeah, the Klingons in the Federation typically are. But the well, Romulans, you just don't know. One of the most interesting things about this too, Chris, was to see that uh, what happened in the Vulcan Vengeance arc is looks like it's about to come back and bite the Federation in the butt too. So they mm-hmm. still have this red matter and they are going to use it as their weapon against the Federation once the Federation and the Romulans have destroyed the Klingons. So these guys really are diabolical (laughs) because we gave this to them in good faith. I mean, we didn't have to, but we give it to them in that, that end of that comic series as a sign of good faith towards the Romulan empire. And here they are, you know, no, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. So then the comet goes back very heavily into Spock and his Ponfar bit here. And as we're one reason we're talking about this, of course, is how do these tie into the movie afterwards? And they go back and they pick up the whole Spock inside the volcano, which was I thought a very visually interesting thing to do in the movie, but from a storyline, it was kind of like, where did you guys come up with this and why? And But at least here they are picking that back up and playing off of it as Spock uh, kind of descends more and more into madness as a result of the, the Plaktau and Ponfar. One of the things that I did think was, was interesting here, Chris, is, is just the fact that um, there have been a group of Vulcans who have completely abandoned logic uh, and gone to live off in, in the ways of their ancestors before Surak. And I think that that's something that has not been, um, you know, thought about or really discussed or seen in any Star Trek. And that is interesting to me. I do wish that they had kind of gotten to that point quicker Instead of all this kind of, oh, you're engaged. Oh, what does that mean? Uh, you know, all this whining yeah. that a herd does is and and really get to the meat of when I mean, you get to that end page and, and, and Spock is almost naked and he's surrounded by these other naked Vulcans with the red yeah. eyes. It, it, it's like it's very scary um, to, to see, you know, where Vulcans could could descend to. Um, and, uh, I think that's just a really interesting thing and I wish, um, and I hope that we'll get kind of more of that than this kind of whiny Uhura-ness, uh, that I'm tired of. Yeah. Uhura does not come off well in this comic. I think that 
there's like a schizophrenia in the writing of Uhura. On the one hand, they want to set her up as this strong woman who jumps into action. And, you know, it's even her who who ultimately helps to save Kirk's life at the end of the movie. Uh, you know, if she had not beamed down to the little flying platform ship. But at the same time, when it comes to the relationship with Spock and her emotions, they are writing her very simply, very cliche. It doesn't mesh with the strength that they're giving her in other situations. And it does come off as whiny and you want it to just be over so you can move on. I would rather her not be in a relationship with Spock and be a strong woman on the crew who plays an important part in the mission and is part of, of Kirk's team. Every time they go into the Spock relationship thing now, I think it weakens the character of Uhura. Well, and and, and really too, Chris, it, it, it leads us to what happened, uh, I think, in the last After Darkness issue. I really liked the beginning and I liked the ending. Uh, I liked a little bit of the middle of this one because... I really enjoyed seeing that descent for Spock and, and then what these other Vulcans have become. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. But then we get here again at the end with the Klingons and they've created this assault force based on the ships that they had with all the info with Nero. And right. Wow. Yeah. Is this creepy and scary and, 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 you know, this makes the Klingons, uh, a force that you don't want to be messing with right now. Yeah, that that page is very interesting because they are like the standard birds of prey that we're familiar with, but then they have that Nero ship design and miniature coming out of the back. And, and it makes me wonder what these ships are capable of that a normal bird of prey is not capable of. And I, I assume we'll find that out in the, the next two issues. Yeah, and so I'm really excited to continue this comic. I I, I do hope, and I, I think this is definitely worth reading after the movie. I think it does a great job oh, of following definitely. that up. Yeah, I would say uh, if I were to rate these, I would probably give them both three and a half out of five, you know, targs yeah. or something, you know, whatever. Um, three and a half out of five stars, honestly. It, the artwork in them is really good. I, I like the art style. Um, I like the political intrigue that's going on. I like some of the character dynamics um, that's going on. Uh, you do get some scenes with uh, Kirk and um, Marcus kind of becoming friends, which I think is great, kind of seeing them play off each other. And, and, and they're, it's not like sexy flirting. It, it's actual like they're, it seems like they're creating an actual relationship with these two. Um, yeah. I just, we, we definitely, I think, both agree. We need less Ohura Spock whining. Um, and I would really exactly. like them to put Spock's character to bed finally in the sense that we just get him to get over whatever it is that's going on because it's drawn on a little too long. It has, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're drawing it out too long. So hopefully by the end of this four comic series, he will have reconciled he has emotional turmoil and finds some sort of balance. I, I do think that the Abrams vs. Spock moving forward is going to be a more emotional Spock than what we are accustomed to. But hopefully he'll find a way to balance that. And then, you know, at the end of the movie, we actually are starting the five-year mission. So they're having this little 
kind of detour to New Vulcan here to deal with Spock. When this is over, we will be setting forth on the five-year mission. And I'm curious to see where that goes because I I don't know. I kind of feel like we're not going to be getting a bunch of comics that are like episodes where we're going to just be going through a five-year mission and maybe different adventures. I feel like we're going to be getting a much deeper story and we're going to have this Federation-Romulan-Klingon conflict going on that moves forward. And it's going to at least be interspersed into each comic uh, where they're going on missions like they would on the television series when they had their five-year mission. Um, you know, Or maybe it's going to be like, I don't know, like an eight-comic arc where they just have this big conflict. But yeah, it, which way do you think it's going to go? Interspersed it, or they're just know, going to have like a big long arc? That's really hard. Um, I I was thinking about this the other day, just, you know, kind of what are you going to do? Um, Because you've sent them off on the five-year mission, but at least in in the comic, you're creating this whole war thing. My thought is that maybe, honestly, they might wrap this up kind of quickly. Um, And so they can either have the Enterprise have to deal with this in the next movie, or they want to wrap it up so that the Enterprise is on its five-year mission. And as the writers have talked about from the film, they actually would like to see them be able to kind of slow down a little bit, do a little bit more science fiction, um, and kind of give you maybe some of those more character-driven moments. They even mentioned uh, in one of the interviews uh, the campfire scene with Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, which I I think that kind of idea of getting that with these characters would be fantastic. Um, I don't think there's any problem with slowing down the film just a bit. Oh, definitely. That's one of my complaints about Into Darkness is that I feel like as they build up interesting things going on with the characters, they feel the need to jump into this extreme action. And um, my disappointment with the last part of the film largely revolves around, uh, well, I didn't like the ripping off of the Wrath of Khan. Uh, I did, I think you and I talked about this, you know, off the air, but I did like the role reversal of Kirk being put into the position of having to make the sacrifice. I just wish they had done it in an original way instead of just replaying the Wrath of Khan, even to the point of giving Scotty the same line. You'll flood the whole compartment. It was just a bit much. Uh, and then they had the whole Star Wars Anakin versus Obi-Wan fight scene, except they were on flying ships instead of, of rocks floating through lava. That kind of action, I felt like, I know it makes a great movie and it's exciting for the audience and all, but what you're talking about here of maybe slowing things down and having a little bit more of a character moment. Well, one of the things I, I would that, like to see that I, I like dialogue in Star Trek. It's just, that's what, that's what I like. So I, I'd like to see that. One of the real strengths of the novelization is the fact that Alan Dean Foster adds more dialogue to each scene. So they're of not course, necessarily yeah. different scenes, but they are, there is more to each scene and that extended dialogue really helps explain so much of what's happening in the film. And, you know, I I love J.J. Abrams' films, but I dislike this idea that we can't have a Star Trek movie that's two hours and 15 minutes long. 
I mean, right. we all go see superhero movies and, and we all complain when they're less than two hours and 20 minutes. You know, I'm kind of pissed off. You know, I want to see epic movie telling and, and, and Star Trek is epic. So um, either that or you, you need to be able to find a, a little bit more balance between um, action and some expository scenes and doing them in an interesting way. You know, J.J. does do some great things in the sense that his action really does tell a story. So if you pay attention to what's happening, it's going to tell you something. There's a lot going on, but you have to see the film multiple times to be able to get all that. Whereas, you know, if you slow it down just a little bit, it really helps the audience, I think. Uh, Especially ones who aren't as familiar with Star Trek. uh, Right, right. And choose when you do those moments. Because at the end of the movie, there is a lot lacking that there needed to be more dialogue, more resolution, spoken resolution, what was going on. And then you've got scenes like when they're going down to Kronos, which we talked about earlier, Kirk, Spock, and Uhura in the ship. And that scene goes on, that whole thing with Spock and Uhura just goes on too long. I'm watching it and thinking, can we wrap this up and get on with this? And, you know, two minutes there could have been used much more wisely elsewhere in the movie for something more important, more yeah, meaningful. Definitely. So there's, there's an issue there, but I, but I think that the dialogue that you get in the novelization, that Star Trek, that should be on the screen. And that's when people debate whether or not Abrams movies are Star Trek or not Star Trek. They jump to the action and they dispense with that dialogue. And with Star Trek, I think that you at least need more balance. Well, and there's some great things, too, that are smaller scenes in the film. Some of my favorites is, uh, in fact, that scene between Uhura and Kirk in the turbo lift when they are having a great moment together. Uh, You can tell that they have actually become very good friends that respect each other. And in fact, he's very deferential when he makes the comment about Spock and talking about how that's not appropriate. And then she says, no, no, it's it's him. Uh, and that whole conversation I thought was great because sometimes I just want to rip the bangs right off his head, you know. And then he gives my favorite line in the movie. You guys are fighting? What is that even like? I mean, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I just, that line was, was just, a, it's fantastic little character things that, um, you know, they had slowed the film down for about 45 seconds to a minute. And it gave you a, a, just a great moment. And if you do that just a yeah. little bit more often, you have fantastic films. You know, I love the film. I think it's great. But there are some things I think they could do to just really capture it even more. Yeah, definitely. Oh, one scene that can compete with that, though, of course, is when Keenzer convinces Scotty to help Kirk. Oh, that guy is so loquacious. <laughs> I mean, oh, goodness. You you get Keenzer talking. Uh, it's It's... <laughs> You know, that scene went on for 10 minutes because Keenzer wouldn't stop talking. He's just chewing the scenery up. Good stuff. Oh, but seriously, as it, as it was on the screen, that was hilarious. The, yes. the, just the blank right. stare of Keenzer, and he finally convinces Scotty. <laughs> yes, that's a great I scene. I, I really like his leisure suit, too. I'm, I'm thinking about going to oh, his yeah. tailor. So. so we know leisure suits are not going out of style. That's right. All right. Well, well, why don't we wrap this up? Of course, we're going to be back to these comics somewhere down the road after 
the other two come out so we can kind of wrap up our thoughts on, on where things were going. But I don't know, any final thoughts for you, Matthew, on, on these? Uh, quick final thoughts. Is just it, I think these are uh, well done. There are some missteps, I think, in the writing. But otherwise, I'm very excited to see where this series is going to be taken and, and the ongoing uh, comics that they're really doing a great job of, of mythologizing and, and world building for the, the Star Trek universe here. And I'm glad that they're kind of adding some needed depth to the JJ universe and what's going on outside. It's great. I really appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed the way that the Countdown to Darkness comics prepared me for the film. I think they did a really great job in those comics of setting up what was going to happen in the film without actually giving anything away. Uh, it made you very intrigued to find out how it was going to tie in. And a lot of it really paid off. And and there were a lot of other little things in the other ongoing comics that they picked up on. I mean, there's the, the mention of the mud incident last month in the film. That's all they mention about it, but they do at least reference it. And, uh, you know, the, the Scotty backstory where he's beaming Porthos around, they pick up on that because, you know, that equation, which also goes back to the 2009 film of, of the transwarp is, is how Harrison is able to get from Earth to Kronos in the first place. And, you know, Scotty even mentions how Starfleet confiscated my equation and then Harrison's using it for his own benefit. So a lot of little things like that that they picked up on, and I thought that was great that they played them in. I, um, I'm so far not as impressed with After Darkness as I am with Countdown to Darkness, but I will reserve judgment on it until the final two come out and we can actually look at it as a whole. Uh, I, I do. I am glad that they're continuing that kind of shady intrigue section 31 stuff that was in the film in the comics. And as we've already said on here, I hope that they continue to go in that direction with it. Well, Matthew, let's tell everyone where to find us if they'd like to share their thoughts on Countdown to Darkness, After Darkness, into darkness, you know, anything dark. You can just go over to our website, go to trek.fm slash contact. You'll find a form there. Choose to send to a show and send to Literary Treks, and that will come to us. You can also hop into our forums at trek.fm slash forums. You can talk to us and other listeners there. There's a section for books, comics. There's one for Literary Treks. If you'd like to send us a voicemail, just look at any page on the site. There's a tab there on the right side of the page. If you click that, a box will pop up. You can record a message using your camera's mic, and you can upload it to us as an MP3 file right there from the box. If you're on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And of course, you'll find us on Twitter under username trek.fm. And Matthew, what if people would like to find you personally? Well, Chris, if you would like to find me in that ongoing After Darkness, you can do that on Twitter at mattrushing 2 um, you can also find me doing the book reviews uh, on the website, as well as doing the orb, where we talk all things Deep Space Nine, where we will probably be doing an episode sometime soon, I think, about Section 31, because that would be a great episode. And then, as well, I do my own blog. It's called 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. I enjoy doing movie reviews and book reviews and just all sorts of different things like that. So if you're just interested in seeing what else that I'm interested in, please find me there. Now, Chris, if we want to find you, 
and you're not lost somewhere on that new Vulcan with those crazed naked Vulcans, where can we find you? Do they get Twitter reception out there? I'm not sure if they do or not. I don't know if they've put the um, you know, the new towers in place yet on new Vulcan. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, to, 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 to get that makes Wi-Fi sense. Coverage. I mean, they haven't been there that long, so. Right, right. I think Wi-Fi is a little bit spotty on new Vulcan at the moment, but uh, but yeah, I might be hanging around with those people because, I mean, they look like a lot of fun, right? <laughs> but um, <laughs> if you want to try to reach me out there on the, the lava-covered plains of New Vulcan, uh, you can try it through Twitter. My username is C. Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And uh, you can find me on my own website as well, just as Matthew has his. Mine is cbrianjones.com. Very easy to find. I have some of my other writing on non-Star Trek things there, as well as photos and you know music I'm interested in, all kinds of stuff. So uh, hop over and find me there. And you'll also find me on the network besides The Orb. You'll find me on The Ready Room every week, where we talk about all the Star Trek series and the movies and, and all sorts of stuff. And uh, we just put out our 101st show, which is a DS9 show, Matthew Ourman Bashir with Larry Nemechek. So go check that out. And before we go, we'd also like to invite you to support our sponsors for this week's show. First, there's Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for creating a blog, a website, an online store. You can just create your own space. You can promote just about anything you want to promote with Squarespace. You can try it free for 14 days. There's no credit card required. You'll get access to all the features, and you can even import your existing site from WordPress or, or wherever. And as a Trek FM listener, you'll save 10% when you sign up. Just use offer code TREK7 and you'll save 10%. So go over to squarespace.com and check that out. And also, we would like to invite you to visit trekfan.org. Now, TrekFan isn't just a Star Trek fan club. It's a challenge. This is a really unique chance for you to explore new places, learn new things, and collaborate with other fans to solve puzzles and complete real-life mission objectives. And along the way, you're going to win great prizes as well. You really need to check this out. Please go over to trekfan.org. Face your first challenge there. You'll get more information, and you'll be supporting our sponsor, having a great time and helping us bring this programming to you every week. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.